This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're gonna have a really interesting show talking about the markets and how you could apply some new machine learning type intelligence to portfolio management with two great guests. Uh, but before I get to them, Professor, a big week for the macro and markets and more volatility. How are you thinking about what's, what's happening? Yeah, certainly. I mean, Ukraine is, is really dominating the markets. Um, uh, we did get the, the testimony from uh, Chairman Powell, and he put his cards on the table within 10 minutes. He said, I'm for a 25 basis point cut and open for further, more aggressive cuts in in the future. Um, and, uh, you know, basically reflecting the uncertainty surrounding the Ukrainian uh, situation. I personally think he needs to get very aggressive right away. Uh, however, a light uh, uh Fed President Board that we interviewed last week uh, said he would tolerate a initial 25 as long as more aggressive hikes uh, were called for uh, later on. Uh, so some of the mystery of, of uh, the the meeting is certainly off the table. Um, it's uh, the market is turning to Ukraine and the uncertainty uh, surrounding it, commodity prices, we know are soaring. Oil prices are soaring as we're speaking. Uh, uh, WTI uh, is at 111.65. Um, and um, all, all prices are jumping. Uh, gasoline prices are jumping five, six, seven cents a day, uh, which is obviously going to be a big blow to those who use the gasoline and uh, intensively, um, maybe that's one of the reasons why uh, you know Tesla actually is uh, uh, down less than one percent today when the rest of the market's down uh, more. Uh, the uh, a pivot towards the uh, elect- electric cars, but the market is down over the table. Un- uncertainty. Uh, uh, Putin's war not going well for him. He um, uh, there was worry about. Uh, erratic behavior um uh and when you're a nuclear power that's always a concern um uh uh, and i think that uh if we get any uh peace moves and uh that's not certainly immediately on the horizon we will see a huge relief rally on the market Uh, we see the german bunds have fallen below zero after moving above zero uh, we see the 10-year Treasury now at 171. I mean, very, very clearly, uh, it would be at 2% if it weren't for all this uncertainty um, surrounding uh, the Ukrainian uh, situation. Uh, if it remains in Ukraine and a long-grinding war, uh, that that's one thing. But again, that, that, that tail risk that uh, Putin might get more aggressive um, then just the Ukrainian war is, is certainly uh, causing a discount um, on, on the markets. Um, now, as far as uh, uh, the future is concerned, um, uh, let's, uh, or, or let's take a look at today's uh, uh, employment report. Um, and uh, it was a good employment report. Definitely. I mean, you, you had the change in payrolls about a quarter of a million above expectations. Um, uh, now, the unemployment rate ticked down to 3.8 percent, another post-COVID low, again, showing the tightness uh, in the market. 
Uh, the biggest surprise in the market actually was a, a very low 0% hourly earnings and uh, month over month. Um, but that also brought down the year over year uh, from 5.7% last month to 5.1%. Now, one has to realize that there's a, there's a, there's a composition problem here. More low, more low income workers move into the sample that will lower. It doesn't mean that there's zero uh, altogether. It could be just a compositional problem. And one would have to look at that. Uh, that, that cheered the market initially because uh, the interpretation was that that would lower inflationary risk if hourly earnings were not pushing against the market. However, when one looks at the uh, employment report and sees the unemployment rate down at 3.8 percent um, and no other indicator is showing any looseness in this market, uh, I, I think that uh, one would not want to put too much uh, stock on, on this. Uh, hourly earnings actually um, picked up to 34.7, which is um, uh, actually uh, two-tenths above the previous month, which was actually lowered from one uh, by one-tenth in, in the revision. Um, but it was uh, basically a good report. They were cheered by the hourly earnings, and originally we had an increase, but I think the uncertainty surrounding uh, Ukraine and the, and the soaring commodity prices will weigh on this market a long time. And, and clearly Friday afternoon, you know, we'll, we'll get a lot of hedging, well, I think, uh, on the sell side, uh, perhaps uh, because of uncertainty of what uh, will happen in Russia over, over the weekend. And you see sort of classic, some of the classic risk off trades today happening. You see bonds uh, doing well. They're performing that hedge asset, but you see the dollar soaring. The euro is crashing. Um, It's interesting also sort of this, the value rotation is still happening. Um, You know, some of it was moving on rates, but today you have financials really lagging and and sort of the European financials in particular. Any any sort of commentary on what you see on uh, across those global Yeah, well, the dollar, as you're absolutely right, I mean, the dollar was uh, up over 1% earlier. I I see it up uh, a little less than that now. I mean, mean, clearly the threat is Europe against Europe and, and, and that, and Europe is dependent on the oil and gas, so they're getting a double. There's a there's a double whammy. There's a threat against them, and 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 they're they're more dependent on them. So the movements on the dollar again, if if you get any peace move or cease fire, you will see the dollar collapsing from the current levels, and you'll see a huge rise in Europe. I mean, uh, you know, if if. You know, if you're a longer term trader, these values look good with that tail risk that if Putin decides I'm going to start taking over the Baltics, which are which are NATO members, then you're going to have much further downside, uh, much further. So that's the reason why they're you know, that's why you get that discount today. It's really uh, a a, 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 a two part possibility here. You could you could uh, a binary thing we could have a, a cephas fire or it could get worse and 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 and, uh, and 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 you're getting that that discount in the market uh on that uh you know if one uh, if if you were telling me that putin even pursues ukraine without going any further but and and and, and uh, i would say you're you're definitely in a buy situation here with the tail risk that he goes further, but I, I would say that that it's it's well discussed. Yeah, you have a five percent drop in in the I, I see in the uh, MSCI Europe today. So I mean, it's a huge drop. Uh, it'll benefit long term investors um, um, if you're willing to take uh, that trade risk right now. Any other sort of final comments on, on, on the sanctions and the ECB? Like the ECB supposedly has this, this single mandate on inflation versus the Fed's dual mandate. Do you think there's something to that and, and how they're going to have to address inflation? Because their, their inflation numbers are, are off the charts as well right now. But not as bad as ours, though. But, but and, well, they, they are in the sense that, uh, you, you, I mean, they're dependent on much more on what, what's happening in the Ukraine and those commodity prices going up. Uh, their actual numbers are not quite as bad as as the U.S. You know, my my, my situation here is uh, my opinion right here is that in until the situation clarifies in Ukraine, that that they're they're going to 
hold the course. They don't want to add any more uncertainties into the market. Um, uh, if, 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 if Putin starts uh, threatening the NATO members and moving from Ukraine, um, then I think they will they will flood the markets. They'll do what Mario Draghi said. We'll do whatever it takes to keep the markets going. And you know they're not going to they're not going to to, to tighten. If, if 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 there's a ceasefire, you'll see a huge rally, and then they'll go back to the inflation um, target. And you're right, they are they are they are also only have an inflation target. Well, one should also remember remember from the United States. I mean, Powell basically said we are at the full em- employment, so now we must turn to inflation. So in essence, there's an equivalent now between the U.S. and the Russia. Both really have the um, uh, inflation target with the, the finger on the pause button, uh, given uh, the uncertainties of what uh, Putin's moves might be uh, in Europe. Well, Professor, thanks for joining us for some comments to start the show. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to turn over the conversation. We have two great guests um, from Voya Investment Management, Gareth Shepard, who's the co-head of Equity Machine Intelligence and a portfolio manager there, and Chrissy Bargeron, who's a vice president and client portfolio manager for the Equity Investment Platform. Gareth, Chrissy, welcome to Behind the Markets. Nice to be with you, Jeremy. We should mention that uh, Wisdom Tree has been uh, working with Voya. Um, so Voya, G- Gareth and Chrissy, or Gareth's team is is sub advising uh, f- uh, two of our ETFs. We've had a long relationship on the fixed income side, uh, but now on equities, we're we're working with Gareth very closely on his machine learning programs. And and Chrissy and Gareth both have very interesting stories of how they came to Voya and what their their paths are. Chrissy, maybe just start with you quickly. What Tell us about your background, how you came to Voya, what your background was, and, and what you're doing now at Voya today. Yeah, sure. So um, I spent the bulk of my career actually in manager research, um, working on the wealth management side. Prior to going to business school, um, I actually went abroad to LBS. Um, after I graduated, I joined one of the top-tier consultants, um, which was then known as Howard Watson. Um, and started with coverage of fundamental managers. Um, eventually, I started to build out a specialty in quantitative investing, and in particular, smart beta. Um, so while I was in consulting, um, I was actually head of smart beta equity, um, and then eventually jumped ship um, back to the asset management side, uh, working at Research Affiliates, um, who is also considered the godfather of smart beta. So, you know, essentially, my two predecessor firms were at the forefront of the smart beta re- revolution. Um, and it's been really interesting to watch this because when I started speaking to clients about it, like in 2014, they really hated it. Um, I think people shy away from anything new, um, didn't like the name, and there's just a lot of criticism. But very quickly, that changed. Um, so we really got to witness this evolution. Um, and over time, I just think quantitative investing has come so far. Um, and as things evolved... I felt like I wanted to come back to the active side of things and get more exposure to fundamental, which is eventually what led me to Voya. Um, and it's been great since joining and Gareth will go into this, but since we brought Gareth and the team on board, they really try to bring this AI and machine learning, which is that next wave of quantitative investing. And they bring that to fundamental, combining the best of both worlds. So with my background on this evolution I've seen, it's been the perfect place for me. And it's, it's just been great. I'm excited to see where we go from here. Smart beta is definitely the term that people it drives people uh, like there's a lot of lot of topics of smart beta. And we're going to sort of talk, take the smartness to this new level, Gareth. So tell us about your background on on uh, how you came to Voya. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jeremy. So let, let me do it in, re, in reverse chronological order. Uh, the, the, the reason we're sitting in Voya, which we're very excited about, actually, is our predecessor firm, G Squared Capital, was taken out by Voyer in uh, late 2020. So we're now fully integrated, let's say, 14 months into the process. And the the predecessor firm was what they euphemistically call a boutique emerging manager, which means we're very small. <laughs> and uh, we, we had a very central focus on applying the latest uh, tools and techniques, including machine learning, to fundamental investing. And that firm was established in 2012, so we've been in that game for for a very long time now. And it's really the the key to key to the success of that process was 
well, and this is where we'll get, this is why this conversation is going to be fascinating, Jeremy, is getting to the nub of what it is in investment management that humans can do very well, uh, what it is that machines can do very well, and wh- what it is that really is up to chance. And those three things, the skill piece and the, uh, and the chance piece, make the investment game extremely uh, fascinating. So what was your background before going to G Squared? How did you get into this machine learning studies and modeling and, and, and what, what gave you guys that, that background? Sure. So we go back into a bit of ancient history, but I'm actually not a finance guy by trade. I'm an engineer, actually. And my first job, uh, believe it or not, was in uh, industrial engineering. And so I was posted to a range of uh, open-cut mining sites and and. Uh, industrial sites where I grew up, which was in Australia, and uh, was involved in uh, accident investigation, looking at why people were uh, hurt or killed on on industrial sites. Now, the interesting thing there was that every time someone was badly injured or, or killed, it would be called, you know, an act of act from God or a random occurrence or what have you. And then, as a young engineer, I was looking at that, thinking. Well, I wonder if that's the case. I wonder if there's actually a pattern to things. So to not to bring too much extra trauma to, to the podcast, but but uh, there was uh, an event where a, uh, a construction worker was killed on a mobile crane when the crane swung around and hit some overhead power lines. And the guy was standing on the ground and was actually electrocuted. And obviously, it's a very traumatic event. And it was called an absolute uh, act of God, nothing that can be done about it, a random occurrence. And then when I, re- when I sought some data from, uh, from the U.S., uh, it turned out that there were hundreds of crane fatalities every year, believe it or not. And this event is actually the, the most likely way to be killed in operating a crane. So it turns out it's not, the, it's not a random uh, act, act of God. It's, it's, a, it's something that fits inside a pattern, which the data uh, can tell you a lot about. And why is that useful? Because once you have the data and once you have the patterns, you can turn them to your advantage and prevent these accidents or on the stock side, obviously pick stocks. So I came from way over in another domain. Uh, that was looking at data, that was trying to discern patterns from data. And when you try to do that at scale, which is what we all try to do now because data is so proliferative, the only way you can really tease out uh, deep patterns from data is to use tools like machine learning. And that's the genesis of, uh, of, of the link between the data and the machine learning and uh, there was a process whereby I, I moved uh, gradually uh, into finance and then into applying these tools specifically into fundamental equity investing. So with a last thing to say, with the Steve Jobs perspective, you know, you can connect the dots backwards and it, and it makes a lot of sense. But in real time, I started as, as far away from finance and investing as one possibly could. You know, a lot of people, when they hear, they, they first get introduced to machine learning and, and this pattern recognition, I think a lot of people with trained in statistics get very worried about just throwing a bunch of variables at a computer and you can find the pattern that works the best. But like, is there anything to that pattern working again in the future? Sort of data mining uh, is, is what they call it. And, and you've got this mining engineering background. What, how, how do you think about that data mining problem as you're building models and, and bringing in all sorts of data sets to then get relationships that will work in the future? Yeah. So, so that's a that's a great question. Let me introduce an idea which which folks might find interesting. That is that when you're data mining, which by the way is life, right? That's what we all do all day. Uh, everything we do is and our brains do more specifically is identifying repeated predictive patterns. Uh, uh, turning that into neurological loops and automated behaviors. I brush my teeth, I walk out the door. And so pattern recognition and data mining is, is what the brain does. And that's why uh, humans are, an, you know, obviously <laughs> the dominant species. So back to, uh, back to investing, one of the interesting ideas is that when you're data mining, you can uh, overfit to the data, as you indicated, but there's also an opposite problem. You can have a really good model and, and underfit it as well. So there's two there's two uh, kind of poles that you want to want to avoid. Our focus, which I think is interesting, is that we know that to invest well, 
that means that you're identifying a, a repeated patterns in the markets, whatever asset class you're in, but here we're talking about equities. So you need to you need to identify repeated patterns. I think our take, which has which has really helped us, is that we realized that in addition to that, we're we're attempting to find persistent patterns, right? And that's a different problem. Persistent meaning when you have 20, 25 years of of history of all of the equities in uh, in, in the United States, you've got all of that history in, in real time. And you're not just looking for uh, uh, patterns that might outperform. You're actually looking for patterns which continue to outperform even now. That is, things signals that may not have decayed in the last five years and, and certainly not uh, stories that have only emerged in the last five years. So the way we build our models is to make sure that there is a rule where it is, it is uh, verifying that the pattern that has been identified is relatively stable through time. That is, it occurs in all rolling time periods through history. And that way, we try to avoid the ultimate overfit, which is finding things, finding patterns which have decayed and no longer exist. That's what we really define as, as overfit. Chrissy, what's from your from your background? Thinking about at, from a consultant to smart beta, what, what are these models? How do they fit into your worldview of of of, of putting a bunch of variables in a, in a blender and having them come out? Oh, I think Gareth nailed it when he talked about that the persistence of the patterns. Um, one thing that you know quants can fall victim to is that overfitting. Um, and a lot of the conversations when, you know, I first met Gareth and learned about the team and what they're doing, um, just focus on the data, going through the data, the 20 to 25 years worth of it, and really scrubbing it and cleaning it and identifying these persistent patterns is probably, you know, we say the least sexy part of the process, but it's so important because a misconception is it's, we're looking at big data, we're overfitting, and we're not really doing that. We're taking big data and almost making it small data and finding these persistent patterns that will continue to exist going forward. So, so given it is all about the data, Gareth, I guess as you started building the data sets, maybe talk through how many data sets you're integrating, um, how, um, how you thought about what ones have worked in your combination that maybe sort of surprised people from the sort of standard application of that data. But let's, let's go through how, how you started building out your data. Yeah, Absolutely. So we have a very pragmatic and broad approach to to the data side, uh, and as as everyone is aware, it it, it genuinely is a commodity now. Uh, data they're they're a niche and mainstream providers of all sorts of data. So to answer your question directly, we 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 access at least at least a dozen uh, uh, sources of 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 independent data everything from financials to inside ownership to short interest to analyst expectations uh, to obviously macro uh, and uh, technical volume data points basically across the and clearly the, the big one I, I I failed to mention is, is ESG we really have a, a huge focus there which which as an aside we, we see really as, as a great alternate data source uh, for alpha signals so yeah we, we really access at least a dozen different data providers and, and inside that uh, when we when we aggregate all of the data that we access we end up with about 10,000 unique data points for every company in the universe so take an IBM or take an Apple or what have you we've we've got 10,000 independent data points and that's why that's why obviously machines are starting to supersede humans as as, as fundamental bottom-up stock figures, right? Because it's just so difficult for a human being to, to cope with that level of, of, of data. So 10,000 data points per company in, in the U.S. universe and a little bit less for uh, international stocks. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Gareth Shepard, who's the co-head of Equity Machine Intelligence, portfolio manager at Voya, Chrissy Bargeron, who's vice president, client portfolio manager for the equity platform. Gareth, so let's talk about, you put these data points, 10,000 data points per company together, and you then start trying to run it through the machine learning models and you come out with some decisions. So let's talk about that process a little bit. What is that process like and, and how does it, again, look for the patterns of amongst those 10,000 data points? Yeah, exactly. So let's, let's do, do something interesting and, and, and share the difference here between 
the machine learning approach and traditional quant, traditional quantitative investing and factor investing, and including the smart beta that you were talking about. So we see those two as quite complementary worlds, actually. But they are di- they are different, and they're and they're a great they can be a great uh, fit. So in the in the old uh, quantitative investing world, if we wanted to use ten thousand data points, we would we would gather together hundreds of PhD coders uh, and actually write millions of lines of code to to identify the patterns in the data which help uh, predict our performance. That that's that's the uh, frame of reference. In the new world, applying machine learning, we build the we build the machines, but the machines themselves are interrogating the data and learning the rules of the game directly. So when we say system, when we say uh, our process, it is actually millions of lines of code. It's just that we didn't write every line of that, right? It's the machine self-identifying patterns in the data. So we've actually, in building this to try to uh, help understand the model, we we actually call our models virtual analysts because they 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 quite literally do what a junior analyst uh, would do. They look at the universe of, of stocks. They look at all of the data that's available. They apply their knowledge base, which is you know how to predict stocks outperforming, uh, and and then in an opportunistic way identify which stocks right now, in given the present market, are poised to outperform versus their peers, and 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 make their prediction and make their and, and build their own. Uh, to target portfolios. So we end up, by the way, not just with one virtual analyst, one model, we end up uh, specifically, we've ended up with 26 uh, virtual analysts. So so it's almost like a trading floor where you have 26 different uh, models competing and somewhat cooperating to build the ultimate uh, portfolio, all anchored in uh, the, the company data. And so these 26 analysts are all giving you different insights. Um, how did you come up on the, the number 26? What was what was special about each analyst that made them stand out? And, or, or how do you get a new analyst added to your team? Do you fire? Do you add some new analysts? You're, you're always hiring new analysts? Yeah, we, we feel like we should have an HR department and, you know. And, virtual and, HR. Uh, we, it's, it's pretty vicious in the virtual analyst world. You know, life, life is... It's, it's very Hobbesy, and if, if you don't perform, you, you don't last long. So the firing part, for sure, uh, the the virtual analysts actually have their run their own virtual book and have their own virtual P and L. So we know exactly how they're all doing, by the way. And indeed, they can be fired, improved, which they regularly are, and then new models are built. The interesting thing I, I think is the the number twenty six is. is there's no magic to it. That's kind of, you know, it's where we got to. Uh, basically, it, it, the number comes from uh, us having diminishing returns on diversity of analysts. Uh, once you hit a certain number, increasing diversity didn't seem to help. So we've, we've built in a kind of an ecology where they look at the world, the 26 virtual analysts look at the world slightly differently. They have a slightly different objective and lens. They look at they look out to be more precise. Uh, they look out at different time horizons. So some of them are really quite long term, and others might look out say 12 months or so. So they have different different outlooks and therefore build very similar, but uh, but uh, let's say overlapping but different portfolios. And the job of the of us really is to build a virtual portfolio manager off the off the top, which gets the be- best out of all of them. How do you combine positions? How do you compete? How do you cooperate to ultimately build the final portfolio that goes to market? But yeah, what drives that is these twenty six uh, independent virtual analysts. You could, a lot of questions you could ask on all these uh, analysts. You brought up some time, like some of the time frame issues. I was going to ask a question on how long, when you get a signal from your machine learning models, how what is the the ultimate time frame? Do you think the predictions are happening, um, and and or sort of how long of, is is the predictive model good for? You think, uh, and and then any other characteristics be, that that overlap between when you aggregate ideas from these analysts, how they're competing and, and aggregating together. If there's anything on, on that you might be able to share? Yeah, exactly. One of the things we really like about 
uh, about machine learning specifically is that is the second part, the learning part. Actually, it's much more important than the machines part. And, and the learning part specifically is that we we rebuild uh, all of the models at least on a six month, usually on a three month basis to accommodate the most recent data, right? Because the, the learning window is always expanding as it is for a human stock picker, as it is in all of our lives, right? The window just keeps expanding. And so, so there is a great opportunity for the system to continue to learn and continue to adapt to the market. And so imagine, Jeremy, as an, as an uh, analogy, if you're a great golf player, which I'm not, but let's say you're a great golf player and you've got 20, 30 years of experience, uh, so you're on the tour, and, and then suddenly, for whatever reason, the weather systematically changes and y y y the rules that applied 10 years ago no longer apply. As a human being, right, as a golf player, you, can, you adapt pretty quickly. You realize that what was learned, or your, your, your subconscious brain actually realizes that what was learned 10 years ago is actually irrelevant. All of those neurological correct, uh, connections fall away and you form a new set of patterns. Uh, and and that's what the machine replicates as well. So if if market regimes and conditions change over time as this rolling window keeps expanding, then the system has a good good shot at adapting to that. So that's what we like about the uh, the, the timeline uh, question. And Jeremy, the the second part uh, that you bundled in there, if you can help remind me, um, when you aggregate these ideas together, how it all how they compete with each other in terms of like a, right. a model having overlapping oh, that's data. Very cool. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, so we, we've built essentially a model of what, what you could call uh coopetition. So it's cooperation with competition. So uh, we've, we found that when, and this will be no real surprise, but when, when uh, different virtual analysts uh, pick the same stock, then that, that conviction actually does follow through to a higher higher strength signal. So we, we then will weight stocks based on how many virtual analysts have conviction about that particular security. So that's, that's uh, one, one thing that works really well. On the competition side, we actually put them in competition by tracking their rolling performance through time and then uh, essentially tilting the portfolio towards the winning virtual analysts. And that also gives us a little bit of market adaptation, right? So you've got that, that momentum piece where the winning virtual analysts earn the right to build the book, as well as a little a bit of uh, cooperation beneath the surface where similar names turning up across the community of analysts uh, are, are increased in, in position size. And what does that sound like? It kind of sounds like a human, you know, uh, equity shop, right? A traditional discretionary manager, which is really uh, w ultimately what, what we're building here. We've got uh, Gareth Shepard, Chrissy Bargeron. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. I mean, Gareth just described a lot of these virtual analysts and models, uh, and, and you have to then explain to clients what are these virtual analysts doing? What what, what are the kinds of questions as you as people, you know, you, you represented Smart Beta. You come from this consulting background. How do you put it all together in terms of what where where are the most common questions and and how do you think about distilling this, this, these virtual ants into a story of what the, these AI machine learning models are, are trying to deliver? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, I think one of the simplest ways to help understand this is that it really is almost a combination of traditional fundamental investing and quantitative investing. Uh, so the end portfolio often tends to look more like a fundamental manager, but the means that we take to get there is quantitative and actually advances that quantitative using machine learning. So when I think about it, you know, they actually made it very easy calling them virtual analysts. It's a little cheeky when at the surface, but they obviously act like a team of fundamental analysts. But it's very convenient because these fundamental analysts don't have any human emotion. So they're not at risk for some of the irrational behavior that we as humans will make. So one of the things that we like to talk about is when they're making the recommendations on what stocks to buy, they purely invest this off the data. They're not really at risk to report to a board. They, it's good that we don't have an HR for them, so they don't have career risk. And they're purely going to recommend what they think is best. 
And on top of that, as Gareth noted, they're assigned to different areas. Some are looking at shorter term, some are looking at longer term. They're going to stick to their knitting and do what they're assigned to do, regardless of whether that at the moment might be the one that wins or loses. So when thinking about it, you think you're getting similar to what a fundamental portfolio manager would give you, but we're just able to get there in a more efficient manner through these virtual analysts and the virtual traders, and it's done all very systematically. So you're getting your highest discretionary manager, but systematically without that emotion. Now, one of the things I know you guys have talked about is that there's these different features that can try to help explain, you know, you get all these different models, these these 26 analysts come together, and, and but they're, they're eventually identifying patterns and recognizing patterns. If you had to pick the machine's favorite patterns, like things that have been some of the most successful patterns you've identified, are there any that stand out to you as an overly powerful pattern that's, that's what your machines are trying to identify? Gareth, do you want to go on that one? Yeah, I'll jump in, Jeremy. Yeah, there are, actually. It's a good way to put it because, indeed, we can look at all of the machine's recommendations, stock picks, and cluster them into different types of patterns, if you, if you can imagine that. Just, just the, and, and, and we can label them so that we can all talk about it. So one example that is very strong, uh, the system's very strong at is, let's say, turnaround situations. You know, a, a, a classic fallen angel, uh, it might be a blue chip stock that has, has been in decline for years and years and, fi- and at some point gets to the, a combination of the business actually fundamentally slowly turning around as well as maximum pessimism from the perspective of uh, Mr. and Mrs. Market, right? So uh, give you a few examples through time. Uh, one example uh, uh, from, from uh, let's say, a year and a half ago is Wells Fargo, you know, a real, a real uh, fallen angel that at, at some point all of the bad news is priced in and, and stuff. I think we got Gareth frozen right in the middle of the Wells Fargo story. Am I back? We we lost for a second, but I think you're back now. Advertiser intervention. I'm not sure. Uh, so, Wells Fargo uh, was was one very interesting turnaround story. And a year a year or so before that, another example that that just pops into my mind is General General Electric, right? Which was a long term decliner that uh, finally hit a point of max pessimism, and uh, yet you know business operations slowly starting to turn around. So. You know, these, these, the, the, the name of the stock and the ticker obviously changes. Uh, it's a different, slightly different story each time. But the overall pattern, if you look at it, is really, really very similar. And these are stocks, these turnaround stories, uh, these, are, these are stocks that are very difficult and uncomfortable to buy for humans, as, as Chrissy was pointing out, with career risk and with institutional imperatives, quarterly investment committees, all of these, you know, architecture we put on top of decision making, the machine doesn't have these kind of restrictions. So if it sees a good risk reward, it doesn't necessarily care that the company uh, is on the third page of the newspaper uh, every other day for some issue. It just looks at risk reward. So turn, the category of, of turnaround just happens to be one of the powerful types of patterns that the, the system's quite good at identifying. When you think about, are there places that um, the, the the models do not work? If you'd say, is there a set of factors or a set of circumstances where you would expect these machine models to break down, or, or is there a certain style where these models break down? Like, where where does it work? Does it work everywhere? It doesn't it doesn't work everywhere. Uh, it, we really have to pick our uh, the, the games we want to we want to participate in. So. Uh, the f- first point to mention is that everything we do is st- strongly human in the loop, and so we're we're making sure that in real time, uh, in the in the in the universes that we're operating in, that we're managing the data. The human being is is curating the human team is curating the data. So the machine sees nothing that hasn't passed at some pa- some point through human hands. And then on the risk management side and construction side, that's all uh, human as well, including monitoring of the whole system. So we're, we're, we're far from being some techno-utopian approach where we really think machines can do all. No, we think machines have a, have a, a very precise and narrow role to play, and we think human beings need to be involved on, on both ends of the process. In terms of where, where we think in investing landscape 
humans still have an edge. Uh, there's a couple of places. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, in in uh, illiquid assets and real estate and, and and so forth, private equity. That's really still a, a game for human beings. And in a similar way, what I would call buy and hold investing. You know, a real uh, buying a company and holding it forever because you see that story being a, a 30, 40, 50 year story. Uh, that that extreme long term investing is 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 really not the machine doesn't bring a lot of value to that because it really is, is based on your starting position and your and and perhaps you have some unique insight as a human investor. So it, everything in the middle, we think the machine does a pretty good job and has an edge against. Uh, the average uh, human investor, but yes, at the tails, you know, the illiquid side, and then the very long-term investing, uh, we still think it, 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 humans can do a really great job there, and they and they do. Chrissy, when when we think about the models and and updating these data points, when you think about the, the ultimate portfolios that that the machines spit out, how, talk about how you go from these these model scores of individual companies to actually picking a portfolio and, and, and getting the data into something that, uh, you know, you, you're scoring all these companies, but then, then how do you update the portfolio? What does it look like? What, what's that, that end process end up looking like? Yeah, sure. So within the model, when it goes from the virtual analyst, it goes to the virtual traders who really are responsible for that position sizing. Um, and they're going to look, as Garrett noted, at that risk-reward scenario, and they're going to determine, is now actually the right time to buy this, and at what size should I do that? Um, and then that goes to our virtual portfolio managers and also our human portfolio managers who come in um, and are determining what actually is this portfolio, the end client portfolio, whether it be a value um, or something more core, what type of constraints we need to implement. And they're going to further add that layer to create the ultimate um, end portfolio for the client. Now, we talked a little bit about these exposures and, and the models like the turnarounds, Gareth. Um, when, when you think about the machine learning models, a lot of the fears is that you just got this black box. You don't really know what's driving. You, you described a turnaround as one of the patterns. How do you go think about going to the why of these machine models, why it's making decisions, and, and what are the types of things you're, you're trying to do to understand the why over time? Uh, that's, that's really the key, and that's the next phase of machine learning, both generally, by the way, as a field, and also specific to our problem set, which is fundamental investing. So indeed, there are a set of tools called explainable AI, XAI tools, which, uh, which we employ and build out to uh, shine a light into that black box, right, and, and really discern what it is the machine is doing when it say, picks General Electric uh, or a Wells Fargo in these turnaround scenarios. And when I say, what's the machine doing? That, that means we can actually elicit the, the rationale, the, the decision-making tree that the system has when, when, when buying these stocks. And this is really revolutionary because if you can imagine, once you get to a point where your, uh, your stock picks and the process behind it is fully transparent, it's a very, very interesting place to be from a, a, a client and investor perspective, as well as from an investment manager perspective, because then the continuous improvement, just the loop gets faster and faster. So absolutely, the XAI tools is the, is the next wave of machine learning. And it really is uh, within sight now to have uh, uh, to, to remove this black box constraint from from machine learning which which really it's, it's a legitimate concern uh, uh, but that but that constraint is is being removed and it really really means that the the future of the field is is really bright because there's that element and a few more that's sitting a bit further out which 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 means we, we really think this will be the third wave of fundamental investing bringing these tools to bear uh, it's yielding a lot of fruit for us and we can see a long long future for it yeah, like when you think about like the standard portfolio analytics framework that people do, everybody wants to know factor attribution, sector attribution. You know how tilted are you to the value factors or the size factors or how what, all those different bets you're making. And it's going to be really interesting as you develop that explainable AI to do attribution analysis and to say how is the market exposed to these factors and how are certain factors exposed to AI factors. Uh, it's going to be be really interesting to to be watching what you guys are are doing. 
Um, in, in terms of other time periods, Chrissy, when you when you've looked at somebody, you've been running uh, these these portfolios. It sounds like for almost a decade um, at, at the, the general from the G squared background, and, and now at Voya. How is are there certain time periods like the COVID scenario? How has uh, these AI models um, performed in different environments? Yeah, so it's been interesting to watch um, what the models have done. And I think when it does best, it's really almost in periods of uncertainty when there's a lot of mispricing in the market that's just pleased for opportunity. Um, and the machine has the ability to really act quickly on that and not overthink its decisions because it's just purely going off the data. So some of the things that we've observed with it since running these live, um, just at Voya, is it will – tend to be a little bit early. So um, one example of the strategy we were running at Voya through COVID is that it started to move into that value trade before the market really was recognizing it. So it was a little bit early there and we saw it lagging, but then when that value trade turned, it just outperformed and it was really, really strong. So it almost um, saw some things before the market was actually comfortable with doing that, um, which is exactly what it's trained to do. Hmm. Um, it'll make those contrarian moves and why it applies so well to just value investing in general, because it can be contrarian and not afraid to do so if it sees a really strong risk reward opportunity. Yeah, that, that that's interesting. A very dispassionate, uh, just follow, follow the machine type model. Um, <laughs> we, we, Gareth, one of the things we've talked about is when it actually scores companies, um, there, there's sort of the extremes of the scores that is, is some of how you think about it. There's like a, uh, at the top end, the bottom end, the middle, maybe talk through when you are scoring things, what scores are really meaningful you, to you and, and as, as you create the, the ultimate portfolios? Yeah, when, when we built the, the models, we, we didn't have a, you know, a, a priori view. So we thought actually that if we throw all of this data all of this machine learning capability at the problem that we would actually be able to accurately score every company in the universe, right? Meaning that you could you could have some information that's relevant, predictive information about any stock. But when we built it out, we realized what the old timers have always said, and, and that is that at any one point in the market, there's only, uh, you know, relatively small pockets of, of value. Um, and, and so to your point on the distribution, we found that it's only really the tails of the distribution of predictive returns where where we have a strong edge. A, a lot of stocks in the middle, essentially, are quite efficiently priced. So we learned, uh, you know, bottom up, really, that the market is pretty efficient. Most of the market is mostly efficient most of the time. It's just the tails uh, that where we where where you really can get a strong edge, and the tail can be, you know, it can be a hundred companies. But out of 2,000, but it's certainly not going to be 500 companies out of out of 2,000 where you can have an edge. So that's what the mach- machine kind of taught us about uh, about the markets, and it, it indeed focuses a lot on those edge cases. It reminds me to be uh, slightly nerdy for a second. It reminds me of the uh, French mathematician Benoit Mandelbrot, and he would say everything that matters is in the tails. And and that's kind of the way that uh, that the machine has identified things in in the stock world as well. Uh, and and so being that it's in the tails, uh, is there countries inefficient markets that it matters more on? Do you think this is going to work better in the U.S.? Is it going to work better internationally? Emerging markets does that does that have a a alpha source to, on on that efficiency of the market? Yeah, the international markets are quite a bit more inefficient than the U.S. So there are easier uh, parts of the world for the system to gain an edge. Um, I'm thinking regions like uh, Japan, for instance, uh, mainland Europe, uh, many of those markets are quite inefficient compared to the S&P 500, certainly. Uh, Smaller cap universes can be quite interesting. And then even some of the frontier markets, uh, although there's a, a sparsity of data, of course, but it's so inefficient that the system can really do a good job navigating through that. So actually, you know, one of the harder games in town is, is just, you know, large cap US because it's so picked over and it is, it is uh, one of the most efficient markets uh, available. So it doesn't matter what technology you have. It's kind of hard to add a lot of value to the, the top 100 stocks in the United States. If, if we sort of abstracted, uh, we're in a final maybe three minutes. 
as you think about where machine learning technology is going, where what beyond beyond uh, at, at Voya, like what are the the elements of machine learning advances that you're sort of most excited about, and and where do you where do you see the applications being most interesting? Yeah, the cool thing is, Jeremy, that that whatever we predict underestimates the potential. So when I was when when we were studying G squared capital in 2012. I thought that autonomous vehicles were 30, 40, 50 years away. I genuinely thought that having self-driving cars, it's such an, an impossibly difficult problem that I thought there's, there's no way that gets, as, as an engineer, right? There's no way that gets done. And so that in, in the spectrum of, of machine learning uh, conquering human tasks through time, it started with checkers, then it went to chess, then it went to go and, and poker and, and uh, I thought self-driving cars was the limit, and it would be f- very far out. Now we're already there, thanks to folks like Elon Musk, obviously. So looking at another 10 or 20 years, we're on an exponential growth path. And, and the AI revolution is a bottom-up, case-by-case, problem-set-by-problem-set revolution, which means it happens, it, it happens uh, uh, across the board and in an exponential fashion. So I think a lot of what we will be doing in in finance and beyond will be driven by machines and will all of us on, on the on the call and listening in will will sit back and look at the the financial industry in in 10 years time and what we were doing back in the day will look like those new york construction workers when they were making the empire state building you know and standing on girders 50 50 floors in the air and and uh, and you know it, it seems so primitive and and, uh, you know, old fashioned. And I think that's looking back on finance. Uh, some of the things we used to do will look like look like that. So. So, yeah, again, we're not te- techno utopian about the, the world. And we certainly don't think that uh, robo uh, warriors are going to take over anytime soon. And consciousness yep. uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a whole nother level. But can uh, machines do more and more complex tasks and take the load off? Got to wrap, Gareth. For sure. That's the case. It's been great. Chrissy Bargeron, Gareth Shepard, been great working with you at Voya. I'm Jeremy Schurz, listening to Behind the Markets and Six SM 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.